Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name's Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Um, in his book, The Walk, um, Adam Hamilton, who was a popular um, pastor and writer, um, he shares in that book how one time he was having a conversation uh, during tax season with an accountant named Dan Hutchins. Uh, Dan was in the process of carefully preparing his client's taxes, and as he and Adam spoke, he made this really fascinating comment. He said, you know, Adam, you could tell a lot about a person by their taxes. A tax return is kind of a selfie. Well, intrigued, Adam said, well, what do you mean by that? Say more. Well, Dan then proceeded, he was at the computer, he proceeded to pull up online a tax return of one of our nation's former vice presidents. Uh, This man had made the return available to the general public via the internet, and the return was dated just a few years before his run for office. The return revealed an adjusted gross family income of $200,000 relatively high compared to many Americans, especially given the time. Then, after delving further into the return, Dan discovered a high mortgage interest deduction, a high mortgage interest deduction relative to the family's income. This tells me, Dan said, that this particular family was living on the very edge of what they could afford. Now, I haven't checked this. I don't know this yet. But my assumption is I'm going to find a very low level of charitable contribution given the fact that they were spending so much money on their home. You know what happened? He was right. Turns out that the family had given that year about $300 to charity. $300 out of an income of $200,000. That's about one-tenth of 1%. From there... uh, Dan Dan then explained that he and his associates had developed what they called a tax return credit score. You ever heard of this before? A tax return credit score. In many cases, this tool is considered more reliable than a person's FICO score or credit score. It's a tool that looks at um, how reliable somebody is at repaying their loan. Uh, The tool, in a nutshell, looks at how much money you spend on mortgage interest compared to your income and how much money you give to charity. With 90% of the score, the vast majority of the score, depending on charitable contributions. According to this tool, those who spend most of their money on their house and give little to nothing to charity are at a higher risk of defaulting on their loan. However, those who are generous and those who are charitable are likely living within their financial means, they have more margin, and thus they're considered more reliable at repaying the loan. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating that Dan, this accountant, was describing in the language of economics and accounting a lesson that Jesus taught 2,000 years ago in the most famous sermon he ever preached. What is the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached? The Sermon on the Mount. That what we do with our money 
matters. What we do with our money, according to Jesus, reveals the condition of our heart. Listen to what Jesus says here. This is from Matthew 6, verse 21. He also says this in the Gospel of Luke. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Money is not directionless. It's not directionless. It follows the state of our heart. It goes exactly where our heart tells it to go, prompting this question for all of us to consider. We don't have to answer this question out loud, but just kind of meditate on it, think about it for a moment. What does your most recent tax return reveal about the state of your heart? How much of our money went to us last year versus how much of our money went to others, particularly to our local church? that we say we love and we care about and we support and we're committed to. Now, we are now in part four of a five-part sermon series titled A Community That Thrives. Uh, our aim in these messages is to better understand the membership vow that we take when we join this church, Asbury United Methodist Church. And actually, this is the membership vow that we take when we join any United Methodist congregation. It is straight out of our book of worship uh, this vow includes supporting the church and faithfully participating in its ministries in five key ways, five essential ways, through our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. If we are a member of this church, we took this vow. Prayers include praying for the church and the community that the church supports and serves. Uh, presence is our attendance and worship, what we're doing right now. Uh, gifts refers to regular and consistent financial contributions. Um, service is about volunteering, um, volunteering within the church, volunteering within the community on behalf of the church. And then witness is all about sharing our faith and inviting others to experience a life-changing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. Now notice, this is really important, notice that this vow doesn't say prayers or presence or gifts, or service, or witness, but prayers, and presence, and gifts, and service, and witness. Not or, and. Discipleship, which simply means following Jesus, is not a la carte. We don't choose from column A and then ignore column B. Jesus doesn't simply want some, or even most of who we are and what we possess. You know what he wants? He wants all of it including what we're going to talk about this morning, our finances, our money. Everybody's favorite sermon topic. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Isn't that why you came to worship this morning? Do you hear a sermon on money? I asked that question at the last service, and this little girl shouted out, no. <laughs> at least she was engaged. Listen, I'm not naive. I understand that sermons on money tend to be rather unpopular. After all, money is a sensitive topic. Can we agree about that? That stirs up a mix of negative emotions and attitudes, especially as we continue to navigate a world that is becoming more expensive by the day. But at the same time, we need to recognize that it wasn't exactly a cakewalk for people in biblical times. I mean, some people back then had a lot of money, but the majority of individuals had very little margin. And yet even so, when we read Jesus' words in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we discover that Jesus speaks about money and material possessions more than he speaks of worship, prayer, and scripture study combined. 
Jesus makes clear in Scripture that our relationship with money, whether we think we have a lot of money or a little bit of money, our relationship with money has spiritual implications. Money is a tool that can either suffocate and choke out our spiritual life, or it can deepen and support it. The choice is ours. The ball is in our court. Are we investing our money in the things of God, the things that are value? Or are we investing our money in things that may seem like a big deal, but are actually pretty frivolous? Things that we are not going to take with us one day when we leave this world. Folks, it's no secret that we live in a world, uh, a world where, by the way, uh, we experience about 47 commercials a day. I read that this week. It is no secret that we live in a world that bombards us with messages all the time, doesn't it? Bombards us with messages all the time, urging us, urging us to buy stuff that we don't need. Just open your phone, not right now, but maybe later today. Open your phone, scroll through social media, watch TV, listen to the radio. You'll experience ad after ad after ad telling you, get this, buy this, promising that these things will make you happy. In fact, in less than two weeks, our culture is going to experience the retail frenzy known as what? Black Friday. Uh, originally started back in the 1960s as a way to encourage retailers to end their financial year in the black instead of ending their financial year in the red. Over the decades, especially since the, since the 1990s, over the last 30 years especially, Black Friday has soared in popularity. Now, technically, when is Black Friday supposed to begin? The day after Thanksgiving. And yet, as we all know, it begins well before them. And in fact, I think in some cases, it's going on right now. As people flock to stores, hoping to snatch up the best holiday deal. I'm going to share with you this morning some footage of Black Friday shopping that was taken some years ago. Now listen, this footage is not easy to watch. But it is telling and revealing. Take a look. Black Friday Bedlam once again took over America's malls and department stores. Perhaps the most alarming is this footage from inside a Philadelphia mall where two women began brawling at 2.30 in the morning, one eventually pulling out a taser. You can hear the crackle of the stun gun. And watch as the sparks fly. And check out this brawl from inside a Texas Walmart as two women battle for a TV set. Police eventually throwing one woman to the floor and cuffing her. The situation also came to blows in this parking lot of a California Walmart. Back that fool, dog. Security expert J.R. Roberts says stores taking extra steps to lure in big crowds are not always taking extra steps for security. A lot of the retailers who've convinced people they will get one-in-a-lifetime deals, and so they have to get there, and as a consequence, we see a lot of chaos. But with Black Friday shopping numbers on the rise, videos showing off chaos now seem as customary as the turkey dinner. What do you think? Did you catch what that newscaster said at the very end? Videos like that, showing off chaos, now seem as customary as the turkey dinner. Somebody say, God help us. What have we become? 
Now, I realize it's unlikely that anybody here at this church is going to go to the ball of millennia and pull out a stun gun and tase somebody over a television set, or at least I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> but if we're honest, we have embraced our share of consumerism, haven't we? We have participated in greedy forms of self-indulgence. All of us have to a degree. We have forgotten the words of Jesus when he said this in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 12, verse 15. It says, then he, that would be Jesus, said, beware. If Jesus is saying beware, pay attention, by the way. Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Despite Jesus' message, it seems that many of us want to measure our life and our success and our happiness and our well-being by how much we own. What kind of car we drive, what kind of house we live in, what kind of vacations we take, how much money is in our bank account. We spend our money chasing after the latest gadget, the newest fad. The antidote, the solution to all this, to resisting the lies of our consumer-driven world and embracing life as God intended is not one-dimensional. It's multifaceted. First, it involves gratitude and contentment for the things that we have, which may not seem like much to us, but do you know what the truth is? They're far more than what a lot of people have. A lot of people in this world do not have access to adequate transportation. Many of us do. A lot of people in this world don't have a house or an apartment or a condo or a townhome to live in. Many of us do. A lot of people in this world have no idea where their next meal is going to come from. Many of us have the luxury of not having to worry about that. But then, in addition to gratitude and contentment for what we have, the other essential piece here is generosity. Generosity. Generosity realigns our perspective. Generosity reminds us that the world is so much bigger than us. Imagine that. The world is so much bigger than me. The world is so much bigger than you. Generosity compels us to look beyond ourselves, look outside of ourselves, and focus on others, thereby fulfilling what Jesus identified as the great commandment. What is the great commandment according to Jesus? Love God, love your neighbor, in the same way you love yourself. Now, it goes without saying that there are many ways we as Christians practice generosity. However, a crucial way, dare I say, non-negotiable way, we as Christians do this, is by expressing generosity to our local church. Recognizing that when we do so, the work of Jesus goes forward in this world. Folks, I wish you had my vantage point. I wish that you could see what I see as one of the pastors of this incredible church because every day I see Jesus using this church to reach people, to change lives, to accomplish his purposes. As an example, I'm going to share with you a note that somebody wrote to me not too long ago um, after receiving Holy Communion at one of our worship services. This is what the man wrote to me. Dear Pastor, I hope your afternoon is going well. I wanted to tell you that I have not taken part in communion for a long time because I did not feel that I was worthy or in the right place in my faith. I realized this morning after the message, it's not about me being perfect before I partake, 
It's about remembering what Jesus did for me. Coming to Asbury United Methodist Church has been eye-opening. It makes me think about my own faith and what I believe, and I've been taught all my life. Somebody in our midst experienced God's unconditional love through Jesus Christ at the table through the ministry of this particular church. Can we praise God for that? Can we celebrate that? There are countless stories like this. When we give, it's not to keep the lights on. It's not to maintain a building, although this building is a tool that God uses. When we give, it's to invest in Jesus' ongoing work. And yet it seems that many people hesitate to give to this work. Or if they give, they give very little. Reminds me of a story about a man who came to a church service one day with his family. Well, on the drive home, the man kept complaining about the church service that day. Can you imagine people actually complain about church services? He said to his family, oh, the sermon was too long. The music was too loud. The people were unfriendly. The building was hot. The seats were uncomfortable. He just went on and on and on. Well, finally, his son, who was 12 years old and incredibly observant, he turned to his father and he said, well, dad, you have to admit, wasn't too bad of a show for that dollar that you gave. <laughs> we laugh. But that story reveals the common approach that people have toward giving. In preparation for this sermon, I came across a report that shocked me, to be frank. And maybe it's going to shock you too. I'm going to share it with you. It's up here on the screen. This report said that in a typical year, 80% of church contributors, and to be clear, we're not talking about Asbury necessarily, we're talking about all church contributors, people who give to United Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches, Lutheran churches, Episcopal churches, Catholic churches, non-denominational churches, all church contributors taken together, 80% of them give so irregularly and infrequently that their combined donations make up 20% of all contributions. In contrast, 20% of donors account for the other 80% of total contributions. What do you think about that disparity? It's pretty big. And then we wonder why churches struggle to make ends meet and why churches sometimes run deficits. You've got 80% or I'm sorry, you have 20% of the contributors giving 80% of the contributions. Now some people might push back on this. I get it. Some people might push back at this and say, "Well, wait a minute." I bet those 20% of people who give 80% of the contributions, I bet those are really wealthy people. Some of them are. Not most of them. I guarantee you that there are wealthy people in this 80% category. And there are people with modest incomes in this 20% category. It's not really about the money. You know what it's really about? It's about the heart. It's about priorities. Oh, that all of us 
would make giving to the church, Jesus' body in this world, his bride in this world, a priority. Churches are not businesses. Churches are nonprofit organizations that rise or fall on the contributions of those who are members and attendees. If we want this particular church to thrive and do well and accomplish great ministry and grow and reach people for Jesus Christ, and I hope that we all do, then collectively, we need to step up. Take giving seriously. Not giving our church the bare minimum. Not giving what we have left over in our budget once we've paid all our bills. Far too many Christians do that. Not giving if we have anything left over on December 31st and we're closing out the year but giving in a way that is thought-filled, that is intentional, that is planned, that is regular, that is consistent, that demonstrates on the tax return that we're going to submit next year that Jesus is indeed the Lord of our finances. We recognize that he owns everything, and we're simply the managers, the stewards. As a man and I, have leaned into this over the years. And I share this for no other reason other than to be transparent. Because if we're talking about something that's difficult, you deserve transparency from your preacher. As a man and I have leaned into this by God's grace, this means tithing. Following the biblical precept of tithing, giving 10% of our income to God through this church. Tithing is a practice that was instilled in me from a pretty early age. In fact, I was reminded earlier this week when I was uh, 12 years old, 12 years old, I was walking one Saturday morning with my mom and with my brother, and we were on our way to a bagel shop to get some breakfast. While I was kind of dragging my feet, as I often did. My mom and my brother, they were on up ahead of me, and we walked past this restaurant that was closed. And suddenly, I looked on the ground, and I saw this envelope. It was thick. Curiosity got the best of me. I picked it up. I opened it up. I found a substantial amount of money inside, about $4,500. Turns out, it was the restaurant's earnings from that Friday evening, the manager, when they had closed, he had gone to deposit that money in the bank. It was dark outside. He dropped it. He couldn't find it. This is back before people had flashlights on their cell phone. And so on that Saturday morning, I saw it. So I ran to my mom, and I showed her, and we went back to the restaurant, and even though the restaurant was closed, there were some people inside, and we found the manager. We gave the money to the manager. He thanked us. A couple of weeks later, we got a phone call. It was the owner of the restaurant. And he said, I want to thank you for giving that money back to the restaurant. In fact, I want to come and express my gratitude to you. He came to our house, and he personally delivered to me a $300 gift certificate to Sports Authority. I was 12 years old. I had a $300 gift certificate to Sports Authority. My feet weren't on the ground. I immediately began to imagine all the things that I was going to buy with that gift certificate. I felt like I was Warren Buffett or or Bill Gates or something. I thought, okay, I'm going to get a sports watch, and I'm going to get a new jacket, and I'm going to get some new shoes. But my mom, she brought me back down to earth. 
She said, now Christopher, because she always called me Christopher, you don't own that gift certificate. God does. You are simply the steward or the manager. At least 10% of that needs to go to our church. How do you tithe off a gift certificate? <laughs> well, under my mom's direction, I went ahead and with that gift certificate, purchased socks and underwear and gave those items to our church's clothing ministry. Our church ran a phenomenal clothing ministry. Thank God for my late mother who reminded me that the world is so much bigger than me and my wants and desires who took me to church, including on occasions when I didn't want to go, and who instilled in me the spiritual value of tithing, giving 10% of what we have. Tithing might seem intimidating, might seem daunting, might seem scary. I get that. But it's actually pretty straightforward once you begin. And you notice new levels of God's provision. In fact, in all my years of preaching and teaching on this, I have never heard a tithing Christian say to me, you know what, I didn't have enough. Now, did they have to adjust certain things in their budget? Of course. Maybe go out to eat a little bit less. Maybe instead of taking this vacation, they took that vacation. Maybe instead of getting this car, they got that car. Of course. God provided for all their needs. And if you're not sure about this, I encourage you, try it. Try tithing for a few months. See that God who owns everything doesn't provide for all your needs. Now, all this said, I don't want to get too firm about this, too legalistic, right? So if you're not in a position this morning where you feel that you're ready to tithe, here's what I would invite you to do. Start with a smaller amount. Maybe not 10%, but maybe 4% or 5% or 6%, and then allow God to grow your giving from there. Resist the temptation that many people have to give the same amount year after year after year because it feels comfortable and safe and familiar. Remember, faith involves letting go of our comfort and journeying with God into the unfamiliar. Just ask Peter, who walked on water with Jesus. Do you think walking on water was familiar to Peter? Of course not. Do you think that experience grew his faith? Absolutely. As we prepare to close this sermon, there's some information I want to share with you. And in fact, if you're a member or a regular attendee of this church, you received it in the mail uh, some weeks ago. Uh, you should know that back in 2022, a year ago, uh, we have the information for 2022 because this year is not over yet. But in 2022, a total of 238 households, a household is an individual or a family, a total of 238 households gave to Asbury United Methodist Church, uh, totaling $853,059.71. Can we praise God for this generosity? That's wonderful that so many people were generous to this church. 
Now, of these 238 households that gave, 50 of them, or about 21%, gave $500 or less. And then 80 of them, I'm taking the 50 number and the 30 number, and I'm combining them, 80 of them gave $1,000 or less. And then from there, you can see the rest of the numbers. I share this information to humbly suggest, listen, I don't know your individual financial situation, but I share this to humbly suggest that there is likely room for many of us, if not all of us, to grow in our giving. And when we grow in our giving to our church, a huge impact is felt. For example, imagine if these 238 households that gave to Asbury last year, well, imagine if all of these households together donated an extra $20 a week or $1,000 a year, that would amount to $238,000. Do you think that that's a large amount of money? Of course it is. Or what if every household gave half of that? $10 a week, $500 a year, that would amount to $119,000. Folks, if we had $119,000 more right now, we wouldn't be running a deficit that would free us up and allow us to focus on reaching more people in our community and beyond with the good news of Jesus Christ. All of us are in a different place financially with varying levels of income. God doesn't expect the same amount from each of us. But God does ask for the same heart and a similar level of commitment. There was a pig and a chicken. I'm taking a quick turn here. There was a pig and a chicken walking down the road one day. Well, all of a sudden, the chicken turned to the pig and said, I think we should open up a restaurant. And the pig said, hmm, that's an interesting idea. Well, what should we call it? And the chicken said, well, why don't we call it ham and eggs? And the pig said, I'm not sure about that. And the chicken asked, why? And the pig said, well, for you, it's a contribution. For me, it's a total commitment. <laughs> God doesn't simply want our contributions. God wants our commitment. He wants our heart. I began this sermon by asking, what your most recent tax return reveals about the state of your heart? Well, the truth is, that tax year is already over. You can't do anything about it now. This year's isn't over, nor is next year's, or the year after that, or the year after that. What are those returns going to say? Resist the lies of our consumer-driven world. Practice gratitude and contentment and generosity. Align your finances and thus your heart with the wonderful kingdom work God is accomplishing in our midst here at Asbury. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Are you all clapping because it's over? <laughs> well, let's, um, and of course, as we clap always, we clap for God. Amen? We clap for God. Let's pray. God, thank you for people like my mother who taught me so much about following Jesus. I wouldn't be who I am today without her. And that's true for all of us, God. Thank you for the people that you have put into our lives, parents, grandparents, 
spouses, children, aunts and uncles and cousins and friends and neighbors, colleagues who have poured into us, who have shown us what it means to let go, to trust, to follow you. Lord God, please stir us to new levels of generosity today so that more and more people through the ministry of this church might come to experience salvation and your grace. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who owns everything. Amen.